Welcome to the Culture Builders podcast channel, looking at how individual and team performance builds strong cultures. Hosted by Jane Sparrow and Chris Preston. You are listening to a deep dive episode. Hello, I'm Jane Sparrow, and I am delighted to have with me today Mike Ling. Mike is part of our faculty, but but his big career has been in the Air Force, being 10 years in the Red Arrows and the longest serving Red Arrow, I believe, also. But he is much better than I to give a little run through of his history. But before we do that, welcome, Mike. Thank you very much, Jane. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. And I know that this is going to be so insightful for people listening. And, and the topic really is, is performance, high performance, and in particular, within that, how you manage your emotions as an elite performer. But let's start off by asking you to give us a little bit of your background, a sort of short canter through your career. Yeah, OK, I'll do that. I uh, am now a commercial pilot. I'm a commercial aerobatic pilot, which um, there aren't many of us in the world, really. Full-time aerobatic pilot who does uh, a passenger experience ride really with a team called the blades and we are the world's only aerobatic airline all x-red Irish pilots so that's where that leads me on to I, I just left the royal air force after 21 years and and 10 of those 21 years were in the royal air force aerobatic team which everyone knows as the red arrows i spent four years as one of their display pilots and six years as their supervisor so uh, a lot of time in the red arrows in fact half my time in the royal air force but but before then i was in fact a a tornado fighter pilot and before that I was a flying instructor so um, a good a good time in the Royal Air Force but it was time to move on and uh, and now I find myself as a, a commercial pilot. And I am looking forward to the opportunity to come and join you at the Blades doing something I'm not sure you'll get me up in a plane but who knows you might do having seen you all fly on the on the Red Arrows days we've done with you and um, I'm left with my heart in my mouth just watching but uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, I mean, obviously in that career, one of the things that, that is obvious is you're a wonderful example of, a, of an elite performer. And I know that you're aware of our, our concept of the bank of me and the notion that we all need to manage our human bank accounts to be in the black and, and therefore that we can perform at our best. And that involves emotions, our physiological self, our, our focus, our motivation and our growth. But, but just in terms of your experience, particularly in the Red Arrows, what did you learn about in terms of how to, to be intentional about managing yourself that you still hold dear now and, and really use in this next part of your career? Yeah, I think from, from the physiological side, the you know, uh, flying is very well regulated. Of course, it has to be for, from the safety element. So in, in the Royal Air Force, there are really tight regulations. There are almost crew duty regulations that dictate how much work you can do and how much sleep you need and so that that really just sets the scene for for how you're meant to keep keep yourself fresh, if you like, from a sleep perspective. It's the same now in the in the civil world. There are regulations. As a commercial pilot, you're only allowed to do a certain number of days at work, certain number of hours per day before you need um, a, a rest period, and that that really is dictated for you. Now, of course, if you if you are given that opportunity for sleep, but you're in a hotel and you have a bad night's sleep for whatever reason, then it's kind of big boys rules. It's up to you to then tell everybody or tell the team that you didn't have a good night's sleep and you're not at your, your fittest. And if you're not fit to fly, then you put your hand up and say, I'm not fit to fly. You've got to be honest with yourself 
um, and honest with others because they're relying on you to be to be on top of your game. Yeah, and of course that sleep component affects your judgment, your focus, but also how you feel, doesn't it, emotionally? And and I'm intrigued to to understand throughout your career, what what sort of development, what training, what help did you have in terms of thinking through how you manage your emotions? I wouldn't say there was that much training in managing emotions, but what's interesting about flying training in the military is that the, over a very evolved course, that the course is very structured so that you are taught how to deal with uh, what you need to deal with properly when it comes to being in a cockpit to get the job done. So I think um, as a student pilot, you are uh, not really afforded any opportunity to to dwell on things because there's no time for that. And likewise, in a cockpit, you can't really dwell on things. You've got to make sure that the next thing happens to, to make sure that you're getting the, the job done at the right time, doing the right thing. So when it comes to flying training, for example, there are on one course, the basic flying training course that, that most fast jet pilots would have done back in, in the day. Um, unfortunately, it has recently changed. But the, the, current, the previous course, you, you've done about 115 flights in, in the aircraft. Now, each one of those flights has a, a marking criteria. And if you don't make the grade, you fail the trip. You then get a, a refresher or a, um, a package where you can maybe get some remedial help. And if you then don't pass the trip again, there's a chance that you might get kicked off the course. So it, there isn't really time to dwell on anything. You've just got to focus on what, what's next, what's important, knowing which ball you can't afford to drop. That's obviously very, very big, which is all about prioritization. And, and that's really how people learn to deal with their emotions. If, if you do fail a course, the biggest thing you've got to learn is that don't get yourself onto the slippery slope and put yourself back yourself into a corner of of feeling down and feeling low just concentrate on what you need to do to put it right and, and make sure you don't do it again really so no real emotional training but i think just the nature of the way flying training works the pace it works the the crucial nature of each flight i think that really gears you up to be to handle emotions when it comes to flying yeah and i suppose what it gives you is that emotional resilience just by nature of how you're doing what you're doing doesn't it because i love the notion of of actually you, you can't look back you've got to look forward and we talk about the the idea of controlling the controllables and, and if you can't control it then then stop worrying about it and, and do something about what you can control or influence and it sounds very much like that's a real kind of foundation of all of the the work that you've done throughout your career yeah, exactly that. So um, um, important thing, but I think we'll come on to it later in our chat, but, but debriefing is obviously the most important thing. That The one thing you don't want to do is make make the same mistake again. And you can only really learn what those mistakes were by, by fully debriefing something. And um, like you said, there's, there's no point in, if you can't put something right, don't even bother trying. Look forward to what you can put right and make sure it doesn't happen in the future almost. Yeah, and I know obviously you're talking about you know, the, the flying career, but earlier in your career, you had quite an, an extraordinary time where you really had to manage yourself well, didn't you? Can, can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, we're talking about my accident. We are talking about your accident. Yeah, so uh, it was in March 20, 2010. Um, we were in Crete. Uh, I was red six. So it was in my third year in the Red Arrows. Normally pilots would do three years stint on the Red Arrows. I was in my third year. So I was red six, who, if you've seen a Red Arrows display, uh, is one of the synchro pair. So the, the pilots who fly the jets towards each other. So head to head, narrowly avoiding each other to give the crowd a thrill of um, what, looks, what looks like an impending collision. Um, now, it's, it is designed with a little bit of smoke and mirrors. I won't, I won't go into the detail, but there there is a safety margin built in. So you're, you're the design of the manoeuvre is that you're not meant to be that close. Now, unfortunately, on the 23rd of March, 2010, I was leading the synchro pair 
and uh, a manoeuvre didn't go quite as according to plan. And uh, we, we did actually erode the safety margin and, and collided head on, uh, each doing 400 miles an hour. Uh, the tip of my wingman's tail fin hit my canopy about 18 inches above my head and his tail actually hit my my wing so his his right tail plane hit my right wing so uh it was all very quick we were doing 400 miles an hour each so a closure of 800 miles an hour or just over in fact and um we we're only at 100 feet um the unfortunate thing was my canopy shattered so you, you go from uh, zero nice relatively quiet cockpit to 400 mile an hour wind noise in the cockpit and um and uh, very distracted. There was shattered perspex and glass everywhere. Obviously, after a, a big bang, so I, I didn't want to hang around. So I, I used the Martin Baker ejection seat—a very quick decision to to eject, um, which uh, didn't go very well. It obviously, saved my life because I'm here talking today. But um, I was quite badly injured. I dislocated my shoulder. I was knocked unconscious through the force of the ejection, and uh, and landed unconscious in my parachute, which hadn't inflated properly because of the the fireball of the jet hitting the ground. It meant the, parachute didn't inflate properly uh so i hit the ground quite hard which um damaged my knees as well and i had various cuts and burns and bruises so not not a brilliant day at work but um yeah that was that was the leading on to how we come to talk about emotions really i i was airlifted out of uh crete we were on an airfield in crete i was after a couple of days in a greek hospital i was airlifted back to the uk and then put in a uh, military hospital in birmingham which um which really was the, the, the way I got over it from a mental perspective because I just had my dream job almost snatched away from me in, in quite literally a split second. Uh, I probably wasn't going to fly in the Red Arrows again because it was my final year in the team. I was leading the synchro pair. It was all going swimmingly. And then that that, that split second error, if you like, or, or malfunction of the manoeuvre, the design of the manoeuvre, meant that it wasn't uh, it wasn't to be. So I was could have felt very low and in fact for the first couple of days I didn't think I was going to be on the ground for that long until the prognosis from the doctors was you're probably going to be off flying for at least six months maybe even a year um and that was that made me a bit a bit low until I moved into this military ward in Birmingham where next to me was uh, a soldier who bear in mind in 2010 we were kind of in the, the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns where the UK military was very heavily involved over overseas and a lot of people were coming back with life-changing injuries after you know, insurgent IEDs and and explosions and and all the rest of that. So, I was in the bed next to a soldier who had had two legs or both his legs and an arm blown off in a in an IED. So, that kind of puts it into perspective. You know, I was feeling sorry for myself. I had damaged myself. No, I hadn't lost any limbs, but I was in the bed next to somebody who had done exactly that. His whole life was changing. He was in his dream job as a soldier. It's all he wanted to do. And now he couldn't be a soldier anymore because of his injuries. So um, that really did sort of hammer it home that I needed to stop moping, concentrate on getting better so that I could go back to flying and and um, just just mentally get over the, the state I was in because there, there is somebody that's always going to be worse than you. I mean, just listening to that, Mike, it, it gives me goosebumps. And to think that everything happened so quickly but but what a journey to go on and thank goodness you're here telling the story and I know there's lots more that you tell when you when you're out there talking to groups of people but but that piece that about purpose your purpose was all about flying and that suddenly being taken away from you and and not really knowing whether you'd get back in a plane that must have been a huge deal to, to to have to come to terms with the not knowing whether you would still have that that flying purpose yeah it was i 
I'd wanted to be a pilot since I was about three years old, having having actually seen the Red Arrows at my hometown growing up for every year. And um, it was really a big deal for me. I, I did my you know, my entire school life was based around getting in the Royal Air Force and becoming a pilot. You know, I didn't go to university because all I wanted to do was get flying straight away. So um, I was I was living the dream. I, I got selected for the Red Arrows when I was I think I was twenty seven when I was selected. So I, you know, pretty young in terms of um, in terms of that stage of my career. And I was having a whale of a time. It was the best job representing the country. Uh, some of the flying was, as you can imagine, just as a, as a fast jet pilot, some of the flying the Red Arrows do just takes it up to another level. And um, yeah, to, to have that taken away, I was at, coming towards the end of my time in the Red Arrows. I'd been promoted. So the future was looking pretty bright in terms of moving on to a job as a senior officer in the Royal Air Force. And um, and then this happened, which meant that I was going to lose my my last year in the team so a third of my time in the team um that i i'm obviously very biased but being being leader of the synchro pair is also almost the icing on the cake when it comes to being a red arrows pilot a lot of the pilots want to be in the synchro pair so to be leading the synchro pair and then that to happen just makes it even more of a, a bit of a bitter pill to swallow really but um it did kind of make me feel that i didn't have a purpose but i was i was quite positive even even having been told you might not fly for a year you know, the doctor was telling me that I was still going to fly, but it might be for not for a while. But the other thing that was that was a bit of a blow was um, the fact that you know I was part of a very very close knit team, and all of a sudden I've I've been removed from my teammates, and I'm not going to see my teammates for for a few weeks or even months. So it was going from a very close knit team to being in hospital, not going to be flying for a while. But as I said before, you know, just just to put that into perspective with the people I was sharing that that hospital ward with it, it really wasn't a big deal that there was it was that I was probably the least injured person and certainly the least affected person from their injuries on that ward for for the time I was in hospital so um there really is a a case of you just got to get on with it get get over yourself snap out of it and uh, and and look look for the positives and move on I'm going to use that mantra now Mike the, the Mike mantra of just get over yourself and get on with it I think that's a brilliant thing to do now now I'm going to come back to the team element because that is a huge component of feeling safe enough to be able to raise how you're feeling which of course is a big thing around emotions but before I do that I've got to ask you now in the blades, you know, you get these people that are civilians coming to, to be taken up in a plane in an acrobatic plane there's got to be some emotions you see from people when they arrive and, and they jump in with you. How do you help them to, to get the right emotional experience on their, their journey with you? That, that's, that's actually a very good question. So the flying with the Red Arrows, you rarely got to take people flying to share the experience, certainly in a, in a formation practice where you're doing the sort of low-level formation aerobatics because it, it's a military aeroplane. You don't really get the opportunity to do it. Sometimes you take media flying or you give somebody a an air experience flight, but it wouldn't be as part of the main formation. So the idea of the blades is that you're actually doing that as a day to day job. If they're paying passengers, they buy a ticket. We're an airline, so they buy a ticket and they come in the in the airplane. They actually the front of the airplane in, in the extra that we fly and we show them close formation aerobatics. We do loops and rolls with with them in the front in close formation as, as a four aircraft formation. So. Uh, the, the best bit about this job is that on one of those days where we do a lot of passenger flying, we might fly seven or eight passengers in a day, and each one of those people reacts differently to the experience. Some people have never flown in a light aircraft before. Some people are, are airline pilots who have just want to come for a, a flying that's a bit different. And every single person you fly will, will react differently. And that's actually part of the fun is managing 
the trip to make sure that they get the most out of it. And you can almost sense a lot of it. Come, I can't see them. Well, they're sat in front of me, but I can't see the looks on their face. But I can hear through the intercom how they're reacting to everything. Some people are, uh, are silent during some bits. That obviously is an indicator that maybe they didn't like it very much. Some people are giggling away, which is always a good indicator because it means they're enjoying it. Some people <laughs> are screaming. And it, it, some people let out a little noise that says to me, okay, they don't want to do that again. Uh, so you've just got to listen to people's reactions and, and try and manage the, the, the trip. It's only a 25-minute trip, so you need to make the most of it, but, but not pushing it too far over the edge where they don't like it and they want to stop or you make them feel ill, or uh, or if they just want more and more and more. So listening to what they're saying or how they're reacting and what they're saying is definitely the way to manage that. And I really do think that's the best part of the job. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously you're in, in our faculty because of the fact that there's so much of what you do that we can apply to leadership and team. And that ability to spot people's emotions and feelings from their reactions, especially when you can't see them, is something we work with a lot of leaders and, and team members to develop further. And, and to you, it's just second nature, but you're having to use it because otherwise things could go could, could go quite wrong in the cockpit, I'm imagining. But let, let's just go back. You were talking earlier on about the debriefing and I want to make sure we cover that. And the fact that when when you're you're flying, you have the debrief and that's a big part of being able to, to, to learn, to grow, but also to challenge. Just tell us a little bit more about, again, ha- how you manage yourself and others when perhaps you're having to give some, some quite direct feedback about the way you've performed or, or the way somebody else has performed. Because that must kind of be a bit of an ouch moment when someone says, well, on that, on that flight that we took this morning, you know, actually, you, you didn't work out quite the way that you needed to. Yeah, that's uh, it is very important. I'll cover it from a Rodaris perspective. It's, it's slightly different from the way you would normally debrief. So when I was an instructor, for example, you'd expect the instructor to debrief the student on their performance. Whereas in the Red Arrows, it's a very objective debrief based on everyone admitting their own errors. So that's why it's slightly different in that you're expected as a Red Arrows pilot to call your own errors and be honest and open about everything. So every Every display practice or display, for that matter, is filmed in, filmed in, um, zoomed in, you know, and then it's played back and played it even at slow motion. You know, the ruler, the ruler comes out on the board and measures the distance between wingtips to make sure you're in the right place. You are expected to declare if you're not in the right place. If you're in the right place, you don't say anything. If you're not in the right place, you say, I'm out of position because I'm too long, too short, too high, too low, whatever it might be. So you are expected to, to declare that. There is a little bit of a hierarchy in that the the senior pilots in the team, so the third year pilots or the team leader, might point out to a junior pilot who hasn't recognised an error. They might say, you're not in position there. He might agree, he might not. I say, I keep saying he. We've had one female pilot, but I, I, use, the, I use he as the, uh, as the reference. It, he might say that uh, he, he might not notice he's out of position. One of the senior pilots who's got a lot more experience than that junior guy will point it out. And then he just takes it on the chin. He might disagree and then they'll discuss it to work out he needs to be shown why he's out of position. So it's not a case of right or wrong. You can look at the board and, and or look at the, the picture from the video and say, well, it's quite obvious to some people, but not to others. So it's all part of that learning process. What is interesting about the uh, managing, you know, you've got 10, 10 quite, I suppose I'm going to do myself a bit of a t- turn here, but um, egotistical pilots here, they're quite uh, opinionated. So to put 10 people in a room and have that quite frank discussion, 
is it can sometimes be well, could not can but could probably sometimes be a little bit heated the way we kind of get around that is that nothing is personal and that's done by really taking away any personal aspects so names aren't used at all so your call sign is used so from red one to red 10 the call sign is used so if, if red four whose name for example is john john is out of position he will say four is long four is short four is high four is low whatever he is he will call his position if he doesn't say it and red eight notices that red four is not in position he'll say four you're not in position there you're long you're white and you're affecting me where i am in my position and that's what it's all about is that if you somebody else is affected by your position it needs to be declared and if it isn't declared one of the senior guys will do it but it's done with that in uh, impersonal sense of not using a name what that means is that any dispute really is then not carried on outside of that debrief because you go back to using names outside the briefing room and it's almost forgotten about because that was part of the job you've, you've left that in there we'll go and out and fly again and make sure we don't do it again and, and put it right which is the whole, obviously the whole purpose of the debrief itself yeah, and I think that that's really what struck me when I've been up watching. And, and it is an amazing experience to watch the fact that you're all having a chat beforehand and making me a cup of coffee outside the briefing room, then into the briefing room. And suddenly it's a very focused, fast, direct briefing session and debriefing session and just the power of that. But but the fact that you all know that you're having that conversation, you're calling things out because you all want to make things better every time is so critical. You've not got anyone wondering why someone is giving feedback. It's all because you're in the pursuit of excellence. Exactly that. But the, the, it comes from, uh, I think this is where maybe perhaps businesses could learn from this debriefing process. If you've got an objective debrief, or objective objectivity lines, if you like, in the debrief. Whenever you review something you've done, then if, you, if you're objective about it, then you can mark things off against those objectives and, and you've got a purpose for the debrief. I've seen so many debriefs where there's no real objective from it. We're just having a chat about what we did and that's not going to achieve anything. You, you've, got to, you've got to measure what you did and how you're going to put it right next time. And that's obviously the whole point of a Red Arrow's debrief and a Blade's debrief is that the whole purpose of it is... How can we make this better? How can we get the perfect display? Well, the mistakes or errors we made, no matter how small, as long as we bring them up and we know about them, then we know we can put them right next time. And I think that's where businesses could perhaps learn from this sort of technique. Have an impersonal objective debrief every time you do something. And that way, if you're going to do it again, you can do it better next time. Yeah. And therefore, it's it's less emotional, isn't it? You know, people aren't getting emotional about, well, why are you saying that? Or, ouch, that hurt. And I now feel feel wounded because you're all clear on why you're having the conversation and you're doing it in the right spirit. And I think there's a huge amount of business could learn there. Indeed. But I do think that all does stem from being able to be honest with yourself as well and admitting admitting your own errors or admitting your own performance. And obviously, pat, pat yourself on the back where it's due as well, because if, if you do something very well and that makes a difference to how the overall performance is scored then 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 it's got to be highlighted as well and I think whether someone else does that or you do it about yourself I think that is also quite important yeah because there's all you mentioned ego earlier and of course there's ego we've all got ego but but balancing that with the humility to be able to celebrate others success and point out what could be better is a big part of being a great team isn't it and so how how did how and what helped you to be able to do that to be able to leave that ego behind it's i think um when it comes to a team like the red arrows they're, they're very fortunate in that you they are a self-selecting team so the pilots in the team choose who the, the replacement pilots are going to be the following year now that's um 
that is uh, afforded to the team. They're very fortunate to have that. No, no, I don't think any other any other unit in the military has that ability. Um, but it means you get the right people, and it means you're going to have a team that gels very well and they click very well. So it's it's the eleven pilots in the team get the information on the the applicants for who wants to join. It's totally voluntary joining, by the way. So a pilot will apply to join the team. Um, their flying record, entire flying record from day one of flying training through to the present day frontline flying report is sent through to the Red Arrows headquarters where Red One will then look through all of their documents. So look at all their strengths, weaknesses, etc. He'll then pre-see every single applicant to the rest of the pilots who will then, it's, it's ideally done anonymously. Um, so you, you can't put any personal, you, know, you can't choose your mates, essentially. You're looking for strengths, weaknesses to pick somebody who's going to fit into the team from a flying perspective. From all the applicants, then that's whittled down to between seven and nine candidates who are then known as the shortlist. They are taken away for a week's week selection process. And out of those seven to nine, two or three will be picked to be pilots the following year. So a week-long selection process. There are, of course, some technical aspects, which are, there's a fly, a formation flying test. There's a very quite demanding interview. But then the, the majority of the week is spent almost as part of a peer review process. So the, the people that are in the team, mostly pilots, but also some of the other trades, are just getting to know these people. They're seeing them both in a professional environment and then in a social environment, trying to work out who out of those seven to nine people are going to be the best suited to fit into the team. Now, it might be that, in one year, some of those people wouldn't fit because of other personalities in the team, but another year they might. So um, it's quite a difficult process. Um, but it's, um, as I say, the team is very fortunate to have it. And I think by having a, a well-trodden, well-designed selection process, that's how you get the right people in the team that gel very well. And that is how you can, you, you, you're able to get these close bonds, close relationships and be able to talk freely with people, constructively criticising their performance or you know, talking to them about something that is maybe emotionally challenging, about the family or, or just a social conversation about sport. You know, there are so many conversations, bearing in mind, you, you might be spending 16 hours a day together in the summer. So you know, you, you've got to get on. And that's that's, again, part of that promote. Uh, selection process yeah I mean you really do have to be able to get on don't you so if it's part of the selection you think I don't think I could do that then then you've got to call it out because 16 hours a day is a long time to spend with people it's um it's a very close-knit team but um you're spending all that time together and it's not just that of course you you're flying very close to each other as well and you you, you've got to have a trust element you've got to you've got to know you're getting the right people and I think you can only really do that if you're selecting them yourselves yeah. And again, like, there's so much that leaders, teams, businesses can learn from that in terms of how to select and really make sure you've got the right talent in, in place to, to help you to, to really succeed. And and that trust element is such a big part of of any team, but for the Red Arrows and I'm sure for the Blades as well is, is critical. And and so, Mike, there is so much more we could talk about, but I'm conscious that that we've given a taster to people today and, and hopefully we'll give them an opportunity to, to meet you or, or to do some work with you at some point together but until then just give us give us your last kind of couple of thoughts on on what you feel that you'll continue to take forward in how you manage yourself in the rest of your career to really make sure that you remain elite uh, well I think I'm, I'm very lucky I've, I've got a what I would class a, a dream job I certainly in the Red Arrows it was a dream job but you cannot do that forever now I, I took the mickey a little and I did 10 years of it normally it would be three years but I was very fortunate I got 10 years doing it and and i 
would wouldn't give up the world. I, I thoroughly enjoyed every every moment of it. it was, I was very proud. So the next best step is to is to come and come and do what I'm doing now, which is almost a, a baby version of the Red Arrow. So for for me, I find that quite motivating. Is that I'm I can get up every morning, I can go and do what I want to do. Now, um, I know for a lot of people that they might not enjoy their job quite as much as that. But um, I think just the, the sheer motivation of being able to get up and go and do what I want to do every day is what keeps me going. And, and I will always strive to find something that gets me out of bed every morning to go and to, to just get on with the day. Does well, that make sense? It does. And what a brilliant way to end. You know, I, to me, you know, my passion is what I do for you. It's what you do. And hopefully those people listening can, can find passion in what they do and continue to do that in the rest of their lives to give them that energy to be their best. But let, let's stop there. I am sure we'll p- persuade you to come back on again and talk more about trust and experience and so on. But Mike, thank you so much. And good luck when you're back up in the, in the air again. And yeah, d- keep safe and take care. Nice. Well, thanks, Jane. Thank you for listening. Continue the journey at www.theculturebuilders.com.